This week, we are continuing our journey through the gospel according to Mark, a a series titled On the Road with Jesus. The idea that that you and I together are in this big old sanctified greyhound on the road with Jesus, not to Jesus, not like we're going to meet Jesus up somewhere else. No, he is here with us. And since February, we have been uncovering the depths of who Jesus is according to Mark's gospel. And it's beautiful being able to study all of our Savior so closely, to watch every word, to see every scene in our mind's eye. This series I know has been a gift to me. I pray that the same gift you all are experiencing. But last week, if you weren't here, we took sort of a one-week break uh, uh, to consider the words of Paul to his co-laborer in the faith, Titus. And, And Paul encouragement uh, to the believers on the island of the church at Crete was the same grace that saved you is the same grace that will carry you to the end, right? The same grace that saves you is the same grace that teaches you and is the same grace that will carry you onto the Lord's day. And in other words, uh, Paul wants us to live in light, live in light of the grace that we have from God. I would encourage you to, to, to go back and listen to that because even though it's not a part of Mark's uh, uh, content, it does fit within where we are in Mark today. And so I would just encourage that that would be something that you go do. But where we are in Mark, if I can sort of backtrack to two weeks ago, where we are in Mark is we, we, we read all of Mark chapter 3 and we looked at four encounters, four vignettes, so to speak, of Jesus' interaction with a wide diversity of people. He has crowds from all over the world. He has his disciples. He has his family. And then he has the Pharisees. And the crowds, they, they overwhelm him, right? This is not new. If you've been with us throughout this series in Mark, you've known that, that the crowds come. They overwhelm Jesus. He's <laughs> my joke. Is, is that he's Lord of the introverts and the extroverts. Um, but the crowds overwhelm him. But it's important to know that the crowds are not there for his sermons and his teachings. The crowd is not there to hear and receive this message of repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. The crowd is there for his celebrity and their need. To, to, Jesus, to the crowd, Jesus is just a means to their end. That's all Jesus is to them. Then we see the scene changes rather quickly as, as, as Mark does in his writing. That in his retreat from the crowd, he heads to the mountainside and he has all of his disciples present. And among the disciples, he chooses 12. 12 who will watch him more closely, who will live alongside of him, who will cast out demons in his name. And then they'll plant churches after he's gone. These will be the great saints who begin our faith, who really lay down the foundation apart from Christ's work for where we are today. But as we looked at them more closely, we see that these men were not perfect. They failed Christ. As painful as that was, they did fail him. But only in Christ can crooked crooked sticks make straight lines. So we see that us, like the apostles, are a redemptive people. The scene changes again. And Jesus' family comes to seize him. 
Literally, what Jesus' family intends to do is put their hands on him and remove him from the place that he is at. To them, Jesus is crazy. To them, Jesus has taken on too much. To them, Jesus is out of his mind. And they don't understand that what he's doing, he's not doing it for profit. He's not doing it for fame, though that's something he's garnered. Think of how many times we've read Jesus heal someone and say, don't tell nobody. And the first thing they did was tell everybody. This fame was not something that he manufactured. He's not doing it because he's crazy. He's doing the Father's will, what is necessary for the salvation of his people. And think of how painful it is to be doubted by your own family in front of everyone, to be called crazy by your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, because they don't understand what you're doing. They can't comprehend that there's something far greater at work here than what's just in the physical. Another encounter happens in the midst of the conflict with his family. The Pharisees show up. These are the religious elite, and they show up after plotting with the political elite, the destruction of Jesus. They come and they say, Jesus is possessed by Satan and, and, tells, and tells him, like, this guy, don't listen to him. Like, this is a work of Satan. And Jesus calls out their blasphemy, which is really strong language, because essentially what Jesus is saying, man, the Son of Man came to forgive all sins except this one, where you're going I can't bring you back from. You have a a hardness of heart that will not be softened by my words, that will not be softened by my actions, that will not be softened by my work on the cross. It is a tense encounter. And then after all of that, we find Jesus at work this morning. At work. But work for you and I is different than when God is at work. See, my kids, they'll come to me often when I'm at work. It's just the joys of working from home. They'll come and say, Daddy, can you play with me? It's like, not now. It's not playtime. Daddy has to work. But, but see, when God is at work, he still gives us his full undivided attention. When God is at work, it is only for our good. And here we find in Mark chapter 4, Jesus is teaching. He's teaching the crowd, but he's also training the called, his disciples, to know who he is and what he's come to do so that they can trust in him more totally. Jesus' opening words are not just for the people present around him. They're actually words that you and I should heed this morning. Jesus says, listen, Listen, but it's not, it's not the listening that you and I do when we're kind of half paying attention to something that we don't really want to pay attention to. It's not the half sort of listening that you and I do when someone's talking to us, but we're on our phone. It's not even the sort of listening that you and I are engaging in right now. What Jesus is calling us to do is limited by English definitions. What Jesus means when he says listen is a, is a sort of super listening. It's one that goes past sound waves, converting into information and then into understanding. What Jesus is calling us to do is have a sort of listening that goes through understanding and is affection-filled obedience coming out. And he does both of these things, teach the crowd and trains the disciples through a parable. 
A parable is a story used to convey a specific intended meaning. It's important we get this rule out because now we're entering a space where we're going to start reading a bunch of parables over the next few weeks. But, but the general rule with understanding parables is that there's one intended meaning. It's a story to convey a very specific intended meaning. It's not allegory. Okay, it's not allegory. It's not like we can hear the story and take different narratives and and kind of subpaths and see, oh, well, well, uh, because of this in the story, that means this. No, when a parable happens, it's a very specific point being made. So it's important we get that out because this parable is not like the other parables. This parable is unique in that Jesus explains this parable, which he doesn't do. He doesn't do, like, we'll see in the coming weeks, Jesus is just going to say a parable and we're going to have to study it together because we're like, he didn't, he didn't explain that one. But here Jesus explains his parable and in his explanation, it is allegorical. So we, we have a unique parable, but we also have the same kind of parable. Here's how. All parables are to elicit two kinds of responses, this parable included. All parables that Jesus speaks are to elicit two kinds of responses. See, to his children, to his people, parables are words of encouragement and instruction. But to those who are not his, to those who sort of don't understand where they are in their spiritual walk with Christ, parables come as a warning. Parables sound confusing. There's not much meat on the bones for people who are not of God's children. But for the people in Christ, parables are beautiful words of encouragement and instruction. This is why Jesus calls us to do that super listening, right? To have a listening that moves past understanding that sort of brings out in us affection-filled obedience. So I've titled our time together, Sowers, Seeds, and Soils, as we come to listen, super listen to the four sections of this parable. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And then would you pray for me as I pray for you as together we hear from God this morning? We're in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20, and it reads, Again he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, Listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And he sowed some seed, fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And then the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Some seed fell among the thorns, And the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. 
And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? The sower sows the word and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown into them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are those sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that it is perfect and accurate. We thank you for speaking to us through it. And since you are speaking through it, we ask for ears to hear this morning. Oh God, would you gift us with what only you can give understanding. And I ask that you give me clarity of speech and thought as the preacher and gift the congregation with attentiveness and grace for my errors. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's hard to have to preach after Jesus just preached, but I'm going to try my best. Up to this point in Mark's gospel, we have not yet received a full-bodied parable. We got something light with the strong man's house and plundering the strong man's house. Do you remember that in chapter 3 when he's talking to 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 the Pharisees? He's like, oh, but the strong man's house, and I'm going to come and plunder the strong man's. Okay, that's sort of parable-like, right? There's, he's using an illustration to convey an intended meaning, but we didn't get a full-bodied parable like this. And it's important to consider the audience to whom this parable is taught to. The crowds, once again, overwhelm Jesus to the point that he has to take a boat and go in the water to speak to them. Like, that's a lot of people doing a lot of things, and Jesus is like claustrophobic, I want to talk to y'all, but I can't do it, gets in a boat, gets out a little bit into the water where they can't follow, he's like, I'm going to talk to y'all from here. That's what's happening in this moment. But also, again, we have to consider the crowd, right, full of his disciples, but also other people are present. That's what he says in his explanation parables or encouragements, and for those who don't have ears to hear, they're kind of confusing. They don't understand. 
Commentators, scholars, theologians, pastors all throughout history have different titles for this parable. But if you're not reading from the ESV, it probably doesn't have the same uh, 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 title up at the top. There's different ones. Some call it the parable of the sower. Some have called it the parable of the seeds. Some have called this the parable of the soils because, again, because of Jesus' words, all three can be seen as a central theme or point of emphasis in the parable. But because that's the general rule, when reading parables, Parables is that they have a very specific point. Here we have three. We have three. And we heard Jesus explain when we read it together that there's three sort of points happening. There's three sort of characters in this parable. Well, what are their identities and what are their purposes? We'll start with the sower. Jesus says the sower goes out and he liberally spreads the seeds. He spreads them so loosely and freely that they fall into four different places. They fall into the path that the sower is walking on. They fall into the rocky ground that sort of separates the path from everything else. They fall into the thorns, which is kind of right after the rocky ground, where you can see soil is good enough for something to grow. And then it falls into the good soil. The sower, he just throws the seeds out. He's just throwing it. Notice that the sower is never identified in here. Jesus said that the seeds are the word, so we know that. He talks about the soils a little bit, which we'll get to, but it doesn't identify the sower. In Matthew and Luke's Gospels, the parable is also shared, this same one, and even there, the sower is not mentioned. But if you looked at Matthew 13, you'll see that right after this parable, there's another one, the one with the wheat and the tares. In the wheat and the tares, the sower is God. And so I don't think it's unfaithful for preachers or even us to read that and assume that the sower is God. I don't think that's unfaithful. I Actually, in studying for this, there's commentators that did go that route. There's commentators that didn't. But I think important, even intentional, that in this case, the sower is not named. And I believe that because I think the sowers are the people of God. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus and have trusted him as their savior. Every Christian plays the role of the sower and God's word is the seed. In Christianity Today, Ed Stetzer writes some of his observations on why even evangelism is down among Protestants. One of his reasons or issues that he has with believers is a lack, a lack of compassion for the lost. He writes this, Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of harvest. That's Matthew 9, 37. Just before these verses, Matthew describes Jesus's emotional state. Observing Jesus had compassion for them. The term compassion means visceral organs, a deep gut-wrenching affection. It's strange that Jesus would describe the emotional state or that Matthew would describe the emotional state of Jesus. But this reveals Jesus that Jesus's heart was and is for people who do not know him. One of the reasons people don't share the gospel is they don't share the deep compassion of Jesus. Do we care for people? If not, do we care about the fact that we don't care? 
I pray that people might weep with Jesus, might look over their city and weep because they are sheep without a shepherd. People don't care how much we know about God unless they know how much we care about them. Family, I, I, I lay down the same reservations. Have we lost our desire? Have we lost our affection for the people around us? For the people among us who have not yet tasted and seen the goodness of our Lord? Have we lost the desire to connect our love for God to love of his word and love of the people around us to receive his word? Do we no longer feel the burden of Jesus' command to go, therefore, and make disciples among the nations? Church, sow the seed. We should be, as the sower in this parable is, liberally sowing the seeds of God's word into every place. We should be a gospel-saturated people living with the precious, glorious news of our great God and Savior ready on our lips, connecting our story to the story of God, connecting God's story to other people's story. Church, sow the seed. We should be a people who, like Noah, has seeds for the city, like Abraham has seeds for our children and their children, like Daniel has seeds for our enemies, like Jonah has seeds for the people we don't want to give it to, like Joseph has seeds for our siblings, like Hosea has seeds for our spouses, like Paul has seeds for each other. Family, we should be sowing the seed. To the open-hearted, this parable serves as a couple of encouragements. Number one, to sow the seed. Sow the seeds no matter where they fall. Our sower in Jesus' parable is loose with the seeds. Throwing them in every which way. So should we. So should we. Preach the word. Say the word. Do the word. Sow the seeds. We must not fail in what we have been commanded to do. We must be vigilant in this work with our thoughts, with our words, with our lives. The second encouragement is that God is in control. That God is in control. That he, like Ed Stetzer reminds us, is Lord of the harvest. That he makes the plants grow and yield its fruit. You and I cannot do that. You could say, Justin, but this sower isn't efficient at all. Shouldn't he just put his seed in the good soil? Then he will only have harvest from his seeds, right? That's what you would say. But I hope this poor illustration serves you. My wife has what we call a bad thumb, okay? It ain't green, that's for sure. Most of you have been to our home, and you've seen that there's plants around our house. Half of them are fake, okay? Half of them are fake. And the the reason is, is because many a real plant has existed in our home And has died in our home. My wife loves them. She wants to keep them. She thinks they're beautiful. She's in love with the idea of the work it takes to keep them, but cannot keep them. Cannot keep them, except for two plants. They're the only two plants that are real in my house. Well, she just bought a third, so we'll see. But I'm not going to use this one in this illustration. There's two plants who have survived longer than I've expected. 
I, I am confused as to how they're still alive today. There were many a time where I thought they were dead and I have encouraged them to be thrown out. But they're alive and they're flourishing. And he, here's the thing. We've never changed that soil. I can't tell you how many times we, we don't want. I don't know when's the last time they've been watered, quite honestly. One's inside and one's outside, so maybe that helps. But I, I just don't I, don't, even, I don't even know. Like the good soil that I've read is not the soil that we have in them. Our soil, if you were to look in them, it looks like ashy skin. It's like dry and cracked. I want to put lotion on it just because maybe that'll, I don't know. We've never given them nutrients. Like I know there's like, like, like vitamins you can give your plant. We've never done any of that. And these plants are flourishing. I don't know. I don't know how. God has made it healthy. God has given it more life. I don't know. One of them to this point is even growing something new inside, like a new baby version of this other one that's got leaves that need to be cut off, but whatever. God is in control. Let the seed do its work. Let's look at the soils. The seed falls on four different soils, and, and, and the soils here are matters of the heart. To some, there is the warnings in here. For some of us, there is refreshment in here. First, the seeds that fall to the road where it doesn't grow and instead becomes food for the ravens. In the ancient world, and even to this day in some places in the world, you can see grassy paths, right? You ever seen that? You ever been somewhere where it's not an official path, but you could tell people have kind of walked through that way enough that it's kind of packed down. Places where years of foot traffic have compacted the soil and the grass. And so there's no room for anything to take root in there. It's a busy path. On the busy path, the ground is more hardened. The ground is hardened and the soil has no room. See, in order for the ground to be hardened... It's got to be busy. It's got to be busy. Busy going to and fro in this life. Busy with one's own desires and duties. Busy with one's own agendas and motivation. Only then does the soft land become a hard pathway. When the sower comes to sow his seed and it hits the path, nothing becomes of that soil. No life can grow from the hardness of the land. There is no room. The soil's room has been pressed down by the busyness of the traffic. You'll get that tomorrow. When Jesus later explains the meaning of this verse in verse 15, he says that the seeds fell on the hardened soil and therefore didn't grow, but instead was taken away by Satan. When truth hits hard hearts, it lands, but it doesn't settle. 
It looks good laying on the surface of the soil, easily available for the ravens to come take it away. Family, the warning in here is don't let your hearts be so hardened to the word of God. Let none of us be distracted with the busyness of our lives, the success of our journeys, the building up of our own kingdoms, that when God's word gets sown into our hearts, there's no room for it to take up root, but instead get swept away. By Satan. Some of you have hard hearts as hard as the soil in this parable this morning. And friend, I tell you, you need to be broken up. You need to be broken up. You need to be made soft and tender. And God can do that work this morning. God can make the hardened heart soft. Beg God this morning to till the soil of your heart and be receptive to his word. Then there's seeds on the rocks. When Jesus explains this one in verse 16, he says, those are shallow hearts. Those are shallow hearts, hearts that when the word of God is sowed, when the truth is spoken to them, they receive it with gladness, but then it fizzles off into nothingness. Until once again, they are made glad and then it fizzles off. These are the ones who everything is fine until it isn't. Everything is awesome until tribulation comes, until the trial comes, until relationships hurt, till the money gets tight, till the persecution happens, till someone lets you down. Then you are easily scorched by the sun. In other words, God's word has never taken root. It bloomed, life happened, but it never rooted deeply. It was just shallow enough for something outside of it to kill it. Some of y'all are here this morning with a Christianity that thrives when the setting is just right. Some of y'all have a relationship with God that is only happening when everything outside of you, when the conditions are just right. But when the sun comes up, it gets scorched and it dies. Your spiritual chameleons, able to be what you need to be, dependent on the right situation. You're excited about Jesus when you're near the things of Jesus, his people, or the church. But when life really happens, your shallowness shows. You are never really rooted at all. What you have is an artificial faith. Your affection for the seeds only exists when the sower has been around. But don't mistake what Jesus is saying here. Authentic faith involves great emotion. Authentic faith involves great emotion. Without emotional response to the things of God, you have equally an artificial faith as the emotional one who's only excited in seasons. True faith manifests itself in the wholeness of the Christian, not just emotional connectedness. but its mind and its will are connected as well. True belief involves the whole person because only then can you be shaken and never moved. Only then could you be struck down but not destroyed. Only then could you be persecuted but not abandoned. Only then could you never be compromising. God can make your shallow faith deep this morning if you ask God for a genuine faith. 
The sower generously sows his seeds everywhere. It even falls in the bushes and thorns. When Jesus explains this parable in verse 18, he says, There's those who hear the word, but the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfaithful, unfruitful. In this case, the seed roots itself, but when it grows, it grows into hostility. It's not just upward hostility, above ground hostility that you have to worry about. It's internal hostility too. This root is taking root among other roots. Things have already grown in this soil. It's not just the outward fruit of your faith that gets compromised. It's the internal corruption of your heart that's killing the faith too. Family, examine your heart this morning. Have you sown in the soil of your heart what is not God's? What have you put there that isn't true but is thriving and growing and choking out the truth of God? Paul uses a similar illustration in his letter to the Galatians, chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not marked for what mocked. Whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is why doctrine is important. This is why truth matters. This is why what we settle in our hearts with what we're watching, with what we're listening to, with what we're entertaining is important. And look, some of y'all know me. I am no legalist. There is room for artistic appreciation that I have that is more liberal than probably most of you in here. But sometimes we use, if you're like me, artistic appreciation as an excuse to sow the things of this world into our hearts. And it's choking out the life that God has sowed in you. Family, every day we are to be preaching, our, preaching to ourselves the true things. Every day we are to be feeding our souls. We, we, we have to stay away from the gospel of Facebook and TikTok. We have to stay away from the gospel of Fox News and CNN. Stay away from the gospel of pro- prosperity and the gospel of Christian nationalism. Stay away from the gospel of good vibes, energies, and chakras and cling to the good news of Christ. You have a God who sows in you his word and it don't need help growing. That seed is good all by itself. And Jesus is saying, let, don't let your hearts be divided. A heart that is overcome with riches or the things of this world is no believing heart. Jesus says in Matthew 6, nobody can serve two masters. He will hate one and love the other. He will be devoted to one and despise the other. I don't know about you, but I think I know, I think I believe that Jesus knows what he's talking about. Jesus is saying, you got good soil, but you're worried about the negative energies. You got good soil but you're worried about all these other things that this world is bringing down upon you. You've got a divided 
heart. How are, how are you saying you trust in my word, but you want to manifest things into existence like you're me? How are you saying you trust me and what my word says that I will clothe you and provide you shelter, that I will give you rest, that I will feed you, but your life is so motivated by hustle for the goal? Oh, church, let us not confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and then sow with all of our lives that what he has not for us. Let us be a people who the thorns can't strangle. Let us be a people who sow the word in our own hearts as well as the hearts around us. I'll close with this. Look at verse 20. The good soil, the fruitful heart. There is a seed that is taking root and it's bursting with life and it's yielding many a fruit. And it's in good soil, good soil that the seed truly flourishes. It's there that the ravens can't eat it, that the sun can't scorch it, that the thorns can't choke it. This soil is, uh, isn't hard or unyielding. This soil isn't rocky or shallow. This soil isn't filled with division and hostility. This soil, this heart of the person who allows God's word to take deep root in it, it produces a plentiful harvest of character, of character. It produces persons who are full of the things of God. This soil produces love like God's love. This soil produces patience like God's patience, kindness like God's kindness, tenderness like God's tenderness, steadfastness like God's steadfastness, faithfulness like God's faithfulness. When seed gets sown into the good soil, God will bring life and that life will reflect him. And what's more, What's more is that they, that is to say we, will grow to be sowers just like the great sower before us. And it doesn't matter how much seed seems to be wasted. In the end, a harvest is sure. In the end, a harvest is promised. H.B. Charles says it best. He says, the good news is that this parable is descriptive, not definitive. It illustrates how things are, not how they have to be. In other words, wayside soil doesn't have to stay wayside soil. Stony places don't have to stay stony places. Thorns don't have to stay thorns. God is able to change the heart. So be encouraged. Keep sowing and trust the seed when it is our time to sow, family. Let's not be discouraged and let's sow in every kind of heart because some of you were hard-hearted. Some of you were in some shallow places. Some of you had some thorns, but God had it under control. Some of you didn't go from good soil to bad soil. No, no, no. God did some of the work. I said God did some of the work. And family, I pray this morning that the things of, are, that are happening to you now will never be the same. I pray that this morning the hardened heart is softened and the rocks are removed and the thorns are pulled. It's going to be painful, but the 
the harvest is plentiful. Psalms 126 says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. Those who go out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Praise God for this work. Would you stand with me and worship?